the right way to set it up is to have all revenue functions, including customer success, implementation, client-facing teams under one leader. And the major reason why I would say that is because when you do that, you get a very congruent customer journey. You're listening to Go to Market Excellence, the show for strategic leaders in B2B who understand the importance of data in accelerating growth. We dissect the innovative tools and data-driven strategies that give forward-thinking leaders an edge in everything from RevOps to customer acquisition. Let's get started. Okay, we're here with Mike Pierce. He's a two-time chief revenue officer and currently chief revenue officer at Surefire Local. Surefire Local is the number one local marketing software for small business owners. And Mike, we're glad to have you. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. A few minutes before we hopped on, I looked at up on uh, Google Trends, the role of chief revenue officer. And Google Trends shows you how interest in certain search terms grows over time. And between 2016 and today, the interest in chief revenue officers has almost quadrupled in terms of interest. And this is across the world. But I, I think, you know, it was my intuition that this is a newish role in the tech world, especially growth stage tech companies. So it's not that often that we get the opportunity to talk to a two-time CRO. And that's who we have today. So Mike, tell us about, this is your second go around to CRO. What learnings are you applying today at Surefire Local that, you know, is stuff that you went through and learned in your first go around as a CRO? Yeah, great question. We could probably take the whole podcast for the answer. I feel like you're constantly learning and evolving in the role. So just to give context, at my last company, I started as VP of sales, moved up to SVP, and then eventually became a chief revenue officer. And the major difference, I think, between like a head of sales or VP and a chief revenue officer is really the function being focused solely on revenue. And when I say revenue, I don't just mean top line or, or bookings or, you know, or the sales team. It's really every department that can affect revenue. So think customer success, retention, the entire customer journey, all client facing teams, including implementation. And so at my last company, when I moved into chief revenue officer, I had the beginning of the journey which was sales and marketing. And then I had the kind of end of journey, which was retention. And that was, I I learned a ton through that experience and I interfaced and had a really capable head of success there that I'd worked with previously. And then at Surefire Local, I'm really running the entire customer journey. So all client facing teams and having those two experiences, I would say the right way to set it up is to have all revenue functions, including customer success, implementation, client-facing teams under one leader. And the major reason why I would say that is because when you do that, you get a very congruent customer journey. And so I have the ability to impact scripting and customer journey and tie that all back to the sales process to hopefully reduce the amount of friction in that process so that it doesn't end up in a retention situation. I also feel like it's just, 
it gets the entire organization thinking like we all own retention and we all own sales. And so by unifying that together as one organization, in a lot of organizations, you get, you know, sales versus customer success or sales versus marketing. And now it's this entire journey is unified under, you know, one organization, which gets really good synergy as you, as you scale. What were some of the problems that you saw when you, you, when you weren't owning CS and how have you worked to solve those at Surefire? Yeah, good question. I think the most difficult part is when you're scaling a company, you're hiring people from all different backgrounds and different experiences who all have different ways to talk about the same thing. So for an example, my last company, you know, each person would talk about SEO a little bit differently. Sales would talk about SEO one way, and then maybe someone on success would get onto the call and say, well, you know, we do SEO, but it's really not that in-depth. And immediately that conversation breaks down, right? Because it's, wait a minute, this wasn't what I was told. In Surefire, you know, I've been able to take the sales scripting and that and the sales calls and then use that as training with the success team. So we're all speaking about the product and what we and and our, you know, our brand promise the exact same way throughout the entire customer journey. So if someone asks a question about a product feature or about how a piece of the platform works, they all can speak the same language. So it's very congruent and reduces the amount of friction in that process as someone goes from any time that someone buys any product, whether that be a car, whether that's software, I think, you know, inside sales, it happens more often. There's cognitive dissonance where they start to think, did I make the right decision? Is this the right software platform? Did I spend too much money? All those things go throughout their mind. And so it's really important that you do training on that and make sure that that success team member, when they get on that first call, is helping overcome that cognitive dissonance and saying, hey, you did make the right decision. We're so excited for you to be a part of the Surefire family. Let me show you how you can monetize the platform to grow your business profitably. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think were the biggest areas of resistance? Like, let's drill down into tactically how you you came in and how did you unite the messaging across all the teams? Was it just a bunch of meetings? Was it, you know, individual one-on-ones? How tactically did you go about, hey, this is our message on the sales side. This is the difference on the success side. Let's unify this. What'd you do? Yeah, great question. It's kind of a combination of all of those things. I think the first thing when you come into a company is you've got to get sales going. As a revenue officer, that's why you're there is to increase revenue. Once you get that flywheel going, then you have to kind of take that process and it's all about collaboration. So when you start a new process, or you start a new kind of, you know, sales methodology, you don't just say, Hey guys, this is what we're doing. I hope you're okay with it. It's, Hey, this is what we've come up with. What does success think about this process? Are there things that we're saying that are off message? Is this an expectation we can realistically live up to? And that collaborative process is what causes a lot of trust to be built as that sales motion starts going and, and as you collaborate to create it and they see the results, it's much easier to then go to the success team and say, hey, look, you were a part of the process, right? Like we built this together. Let's talk about how you can reinforce this. And it, it makes everyone's life easier, right? And then it is also reaching out to people who have been in the company, making sure that they're on board with it, having one-on-ones, having trainings, talking about cognitive dissonance, making sure that everyone understands conceptually why we're doing this. And I'm a big believer in always tying into like what's in it for them, right? Like obviously in success, 
you know, they want to have the highest retention possible. And in sales, we want all of our sales to stick, right? And so we're all in this together. And by unifying that message together, it makes everyone's life easier. And it's a great customer experience, which is the most important part of any business, right? Is our customers, because that's our lifeblood. Absolutely. And so this is your second turn as, as a CRO, but like many CROs, you came up through the sales ranks and you were a VP of sales before this. And so for people who are listening today and they might be wondering, you know, what do I need to do to put, what do I need to learn? How do I need to grow? What metrics do I need to learn before I'm fully capable of being a CRO? Is there, what would you tell them? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's first thing I would probably say is it's a journey. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And as VP of sales, you're really focused on booking. Sometimes you may have marketing reporting to you as well. And so you get that front end of the customer journey. As you start to you know, understand the entire customer journey as a revenue leader, it's really important that you start to think about the downstream effects, right? It's not just about sales velocity. It's about sales velocity. It's about quality, right? It's about making sure the sales organization is selling with integrity, aligning those things to what's being said in the customer success organization, and really starting to think about revenue as not just how many clients did we book this month, but how many clients did we keep, right? How many clients, uh, not only did we book, but how many of those went through the entire journey, right? And starting to think about making sure that you're forecasting appropriately, making sure that that forecast is including things like failure to launch or churn and whatnot, and thinking about how your entire sales process has this downstream effect to revenue that allows the business to grow. You always hear like, not all revenue is equal, and that's true. So starting to think about what segments are better for the business to sell and really starting to move into more of the strategic aspect of how do I get all of these things to work together in unison for the desired outcome? And that's very different than hey, I want to make sure I hit my sales number and that my sales team does very well. It's really, how do I make sure the entire organization does well so that we continue to grow revenue? And there's a lot of different ways of that. And, and, and to take that a step further, how can I set up packaging and pricing so I can enable upselling, right? And expansion opportunities that may live in the success department. A lot of times the VP of sales is focused on new business, but is not thinking about expansion opportunities and the way that I structure packages and pricing to make sure that I'm enabling that upsell conversation where it just kind of makes sense. And, and almost like you're giving that layup to the success team. And again, that's another one of those things where we're all in this together. And so thinking about it as one organization and getting everyone pulling in the same direction while you're being strategic and looking at forecasting and not just hey, what's my top line forecast? What's my booking forecast? But what is my churn forecast? What is my net retention forecast? And how do I make all of those things? What's my expansion forecast? How do I make all of those things work together in unison to ultimately drive revenue? Yeah, that's a much broader scope than what you're focusing on as VP of sales. I wanted to go into something you just mentioned and understand how you incentivize people on the new booking side to be okay with maybe selling a smaller deal, knowing that it's going to be a layup for success. Like, how do you incentivize them? I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, we're on this together. But at the end of the day, us NAE on the new booking side, they want to make money. You know what I mean? And so uh, how do you incentivize them or, or get them to buy into the we're all in this together mindset? Yes, yeah, so I'm a big believer that um, 
people in general, but especially salespeople are coin operated, right? So it's about designing a comp plan that doesn't penalize selling a smaller deal. And there's lots of different ways that you can do that, right? You can do that with multipliers for certain packages so that it's, it's even though it might, might be a smaller, you know, package, it's a higher upside from a commission standpoint within reason, right? So that it still makes sense in unit economics. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. I also find sometimes salespeople are okay with downselling, right? Because the customer may be price resistant or whatnot, because they know that down the road, that customer is going to expand. And especially like in high velocity sales, it's about volume. Obviously they always want to go for the highest you know, ticket value, but at the same time, not every customer is going to fit into that spectrum until their business matures. So some of it happens naturally, but there's definitely ways that you can gamify it. The other thing I would say is it's really important culturally that you're celebrating all wins. So for an example, we have a Slack channel, that Slack channel, every time a deal is closed for new business, it announces. And so our customer success team is recognizing it's not just, hey, the salesperson made a sell, it's we're celebrating a new customer. Well, the other important piece of that is every time that a success team member upsells a customer, that same announcement goes off and all the salespeople are celebrating the success of that success individual actually upselling a customer. And so, and, and the reason why we're all excited is because now that customer is going to have a better journey, right? Because they, they added another piece of the product and that's a way that it, it just kind of like gets embedded into the culture because we're all celebrating each other's success for one common goal. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You mentioned a few minutes ago, integrity, and I know that's something you're big on, but how, um, in our first episode of go to market excellence, we had Kelly Ford from Edison partners on, and she's always involved in her portfolio companies and helping to interview and screen people who are stepping into the CRO role. One of her seven qualifications that she measures people by is can they recruit and team build? I want to hear from you, you know, if, if integrity is important, not only in the new booking side, but also the success side and, and in general, how do you recruit for that? And in general, I'd love to get your views on recruiting a team and how that's evolved as you went from VP of sales to, to CRO. I know there's a lot there, so you take it wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. I was like, do I start with the end or go at the beginning? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I'll start with integrity and then we can get into recruiting. I think one of the things that I always talk about with my sales team is when you're, it's all about differentiation, right? Like when you're trying to be different, how are you different? You're different by making sure that you're being honest, that you have integrity, that you're selling the qualities. And I mean, it is really about making sure that you're under promising and over delivering and thinking about, you know, what's good for the customer is good for me. And making sure that as, as salespeople go and like, I think there's a couple of cardinal sins that salespeople make. Someone will ask a yes or no question like, Hey, is it a 12 month agreement? The answer is yes, but they'll say yes. And the reason why it's, and they try to like sell it, you don't need to sell it. Just be different and be direct. Right. And the other thing that, you know, someone will ask a question about a product feature and instead of just answering a direct question, they want to over explain right? And talk about all these different things that you could or couldn't do or, or right. The other one is talking about what's coming next in the product, 
right? And then if that gets delayed, inevitably it always does, right? Then you have a misalignment with customer. Buyers always buyers always roll their eyes when they hear a salesperson say that's on the roadmap, right? It's like, okay, it's nowhere near, it's nowhere near being released. And for a salesperson, it's always, it's being released tomorrow. And engineer teams, like it's, you know, in Q4. So yeah, it's about having integrity and making sure that, you know, um, if that call was played in front of the CEO, that you would be proud to stand behind it. And I think on the recruiting side of it, I think you learn a lot of that as VP of sales. You know, if you look at stuff like 500 startups or you watch any of, you know, VCs talk about VP of sales, the number one most important piece is that they they have a network that they can recruit from or they're good at recruiting. And that doesn't change a CRO. Even as CRO still today, we have a, a lot of referrals that come in. We're very fortunate to be in Austin where I've worked at a lot of startups. So I have a large network, but I still talk to every single candidate before we make an offer. And a lot of times I, I'm going to people who have worked with them in the past and saying, hey, what was your experience? What was it like working with them? If you had a team, would you hire them? You know, I'm asking that question to multiple people to kind of get a read because it's not just about having integrity in the sales process, but it's also what kind of teammate were you, right? Because if you have a group of people who have high integrity and then you keep adding people to that mix, right? You have high integrity, the culture kind of sniffs that out on its own. And so that's a big part of it. And I'm recruiting all day, every day. You know, like that's a huge part of my, and, and not just, and a CRO, it changes a little bit. It's not just recruiting for the sales team. It's also recruiting for marketing. It could be recruiting another executive. And so you really are, I wouldn't say like the face, but you are someone who, you know, represents the company and is trying to bring in the best and brightest at every single role in the organization. And so being able to, to do that and to make sure that they align with those core values of integrity is really important. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I know that uh, you mentioned a couple of times on this call, high velocity sales. I know because Shipfire is one of our customers at Scale Matters that you guys do have a high velocity sale. I'd love to get in if you would. Let's, let's get into the structure of a go-to-market team and how that is impacted by the go-to-market motion and vice versa. So a lot of SaaS companies, they have uh, marketing, it's generating top of funnel, SDRs are generating top of funnel, and then that gets passed to sales for an intro. Others, it's uh, product-led. Others, it's uh, just marketing, goes right to sales, there's no SDR in between, sales is full cycle. So talk to me about, at a high-velocity sales motion like you guys have at and, uh, Surefire, how have you structured the sales team and break it break it down by roles? Because there's, there's a lot of different approaches to this, but I'd love to hear yours because I know you've had just such killer success over the past 12 months or so since you started. Yeah, good question. So first I'll start with, I think the answer of how you structure it goes with who your ideal customer is, right? There's a lot of SaaS companies who are selling into SMBs or, you know, medium-sized businesses where they can get right to the decision maker, or maybe they go through one gatekeeper and relatively they're low ACV and they will have a sales leader that maybe has more of a biz dev background. And so they structure it with sending out proposals and and uh, having this long sales cycle or starting with marketing and bringing in, you know, SDRs and multiple calls to close. And I've seen that time and time again. And I would say that, you know, 
if your ideal customer is an SMB, you really don't need all of that cost associated with it. Certainly marketing is always going to be a part of it, but you know, the whole SDR model really evolved after predictable revenue came out and it's great for organizations because right, you can hire people that, you know, relatively don't have a lot of experience. They just want to get an intro introduction to sales. You're teaching them how to cold call and prospect, which is like the most important part of sales in my opinion. And I'll get there in a second, but the downside of it is from a customer standpoint, you're on the phone with someone, they don't know a lot about the product. They can't answer a ton of questions. They pass you over to a salesperson. That salesperson then, you know, is doing everything they can to close the deal for themselves and the SDR, right? And so it, it just, it gets a little bit messy, right? Versus- The handoff is annoying. Yeah, it, for everybody, right? For everybody. And the other thing that you see is- it's very capital intensive, right? I'm going to spend a ton of mark money in marketing, and then I'm going to pass that on to an SDR, and then I'm going to pass that on to an AE, right? So you're raising your cost per acquisition with all these stops along the way. Versus in the way that I have it structured is, one, I believe that most companies that have that same sort of ideal customer and that sort of ACV should have an outbound team that's full cycle. And, you know, I think cold calling sometimes is a, is a dying art, so to speak, but it absolutely is effective calling and having the appropriate scripting and teaching people how to prospect and how to self source or, you know, call down a lead list and be able to, you know, put math in their favor is a really important way to scale because one, it helps your unit economics Two, is I believe in having outbound be really kind of the way that you scale and inbound, you really want to dial that in and make sure that you have your best leads going to your best reps. And so everything is about building a meritocracy, right? So you come in, you start as an outbound rep, you're dialing down a lead list or you're self-sourcing, you're calling, you get to a certain you know quota. After you sustain that for a period of time, you have the ability to get onto inbound. And what you see when you do that is this really nice kind of effect to your cost per acquisition, right? Where it's super efficient. You're giving your best leads or most expensive leads to your best people. So they're converting higher. And you're also starting to gain ground, right, on the outbound. And then I would also say on the outbound, it doesn't necessarily always have to be cold calling, right? You can get an outbound list and then you can use marketing and email drip campaigns to warm that list up as you're calling down it, right? They may not be so proactive that they're going out to the website and filling out a demo request, but they at least have heard of your company, right? Which makes it a, a little bit warmer, right? There's other ways you can do it. You can make partnerships with associations. So you can say, hey, look, like I know we want to go after this segment and this is the association that's biggest. Let's become a preferred vendor, right? And let's use that as a way to kind of open the door into calling into that segment. And so there's lots of different things you can do to make it easier. But I'm a big believer if you're trying to go for a high velocity sales volume, marketing is, is definitely a portion of it that's important, right? But you really want to scale with outbound. And I would say full cycle AEs is, is the right way to go. On the flip side to that, right? If you're more in the enterprise, which, you know, we, we our franchise space where it's a little bit longer sales cycle, right? You also have a relationship that you're building. That's completely different, right? So if you're calling into an enterprise and you're going through multiple gatekeepers and you're trying to get to a CEO or CMO, it's absolutely makes sense, right? It's higher ACV, sometimes three-year contracts, 
longer sell cycle, harder to get to the decision maker, bring in EDRs, right? So that you're warming that client up or getting to the right person, because what you're doing there is you're driving efficiency. And it makes sense in that model too, because your unit economics pay for itself, right? When you're high velocity, lower ACV, SMB, you're just throwing out off your cost per acquisition by structuring it with all these stops along the way. Let's get specific on lower ACV and what what are your ranges where you think that the unit economics break down with or, or really start working in your favor? Yeah, it's not so much price point to me or a range. It's more customer and size of business. So, you know, when you're dealing, you know, we spend a lot of time calling SMBs that are like five to 10 million in revenue. So not, you know, very small businesses kind of chucking in trucks. But still at that size of business, you're able to get to the decision maker. A lot of times they're still the ones answering the phone, kind of cell phone, and you're able to get to them fairly easy. It makes sense to have a full cycle AE. When you start to get into enterprises, right? And complex organizations. Multiple buying decision makers. Yeah. Yeah. Multiple buying decision makers, you know, and I think you see this with companies like, you know, sales loft and, you know, other companies like that, where, you know, they have someone who's working you and then you have a sales engineer and then you get, you know, your technical person on the phone and you're going through this, like science sense is another one that, that does a lot of that totally like makes sense to me. But on the flip side, right. What I'm saying is when you're in that SMB space, you're spending all this money and time to push out a sell cycle that you can get to a decision relatively quickly. So you guys have what, one or two people on every decision on the prospect side? Yeah, basically it's, you know, it might be a sole decision maker or partners or husband and wife sometimes, you know, sort of situation. And we do a lot to, you know, there's ways that you can set that up to kind of incent the prospect to get everyone on, on the call at the same time. Tightly related to this is something that I think has been fascinating to see that you've transformed at Surefire, and that is moving into a one call close. I want to hear, you know, there's strong opinions about whether that works or not. Obviously, it's dependent on the business, dependent on who you're selling to. I want to hear the case for the one call close. Yeah, it's a really good question. Because it's not, it's not super common in software companies, like, but I want to hear where it is because obviously you've made it work. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I would say the one call close sometimes is a one or two call close, first of all, but it really is about structuring the sales call in such a way. So I'm a big believer in challenger sell where, you know, you're, you're, you're challenging the way that they might think about their business or maybe presenting a problem that they didn't know that they had. And then you're presenting a solution that solves that problem. And then at the end of it, in our case, we're asking for the business and so the reason why I like that approach is because one, it's high velocity, right? So like I'm going through a process and, and obviously the more customers I can bring on board, the, the faster I can go, the more I can move on to bring on more customers. And so it's really efficient. Also, there's different things that you can do from a scripting standpoint to help enable that. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can make the decision easier for prospects. A lot of it has to do with the way that your pricing is set up, the way your packages are set up, some secret sauce I probably won't share on this call with that, but there definitely is ways that you can structure things 
to where it's good for the customer and it's, and it's good for you. And I think even being honest with customers or prospects rather and saying, Hey, look, like we get it. Like you get a lot of sales calls like this and we speak to a lot of prospects like you. And we know that it's going to make the most sense on this call. So if we can move forward, right, we can help you out or have some sort of negotiation or leverage in the very beginning to help everybody move forward. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, when you think about B2B SaaS, especially you're selling professional pitch takers. They're taking demos all the time from people who have a competitive software or something that's similar, sounds similar, but isn't really similar. And maybe they don't really, they can't really decipher the difference. And so being able to articulate that on a call and being able to push that to a decision has really great effects in, in two ways. One is the customer is retaining all of this information on that call. Once that call's over, they're taking another pitch from someone else and they're, and they're kind of like moved on, right? Secondly is when they go through that call and they make that decision, it's fresh in their mind. And then immediately following is that success call, like we were talking about earlier, that's reinforcing all those things that you just spoke to them. Yeah. As opposed to sending them, hey, how about I send you collateral after the, the initial sales call, which nobody ever reads. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, you go through the demo, you go over pricing, they think about it, someone calls with an inferior product with better pricing, right? And then that customer ends up going that way just because of price. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting that I feel like when you start to look at one call close rates, I feel like that those customers understand the product a little bit better and have better retention metrics as well. At least that's what we've seen in our case. Interesting. And it also enables you to have more discussions, more, you know, more volume of discussions because you're getting people to a yes or no faster. How has that enabled you to get you guys to, I guess, in, increase the effectiveness of your, of each salesperson? Yeah. So the rep productivity is definitely since we moved to that model has increased drastically. And the other thing I would say on that is when you get into this motion of I'm going to send out proposals and then I'm going to build up enough proposals that I'm going to follow up. And you start to see this kind of lumpiness in revenue, right? Where like I'm chasing my customers. And when you're doing that, you're not spending your time getting new customers in that pipeline. So it's this constant like draining of the pipeline to rebuild the pipeline. And it starts to ebb and flow in like kind of a quarterly fashion versus when you're going through this high velocity model and you're taking people through the presentation, you're coming to a decision, yes or no, right? Doesn't mean you still can't go back and work close loss, but you're allowed to work, you work more customers, the pipeline starts to come in where it's less of a weighted pipeline and it's more of a daily weekly pipeline, which means that you're getting- Way more, more predictable, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's way more predictable. And now you're looking at daily metrics instead of, God, I hope I hit my number on the quarter. It's like, hey, I know what I have today. And I can look at that and accurately forecast what today is going to look like. Metrics. You mentioned metrics that you look on a daily basis. Let's jump into that real quick. What are you looking at on a daily basis? And how's that different from what you're looking at on a monthly and quarterly basis as a CRO of a high velocity motion? Yeah, yeah. Good question. So, you know, obviously as CRO, I'm looking at on a monthly basis, you know, top line revenue. I'm also looking at, you know, the bottom line and making sure that we're hitting those budgets and forecasts. But from, you know, the VP of sales kind of lens, which even as CRO, I still find myself diving into, which is why that it's crucial to, you know, kind of go through that step. I'm looking at every day, starting at the top of the funnel of what do the dials look like? 
per rep, per team, right? What do the sets look like? How many set appointments are you getting for those dials? So looking at set rate and volume of sets, then drilling down to how many of those sets are holding, right? How many of the, and, and hold rate, but also looking at volume and then ultimately conversion and, and revenue. And I look at that on a daily basis per team and kind of drill into that with each manager of, hey, what does your day look like? And I think it starts at the top, but it's really about teaching you know, your managers and directors to do that same thing. And then they can go a layer deeper and say, okay, what does this look like for my entire team? And the thing I like about that is when you're looking at, you know, multiple teams and one's performing at a higher rate, if you look at that entire funnel, you can kind of look at where's that breakdown at? What do they need to work on to catch the rest of the group? And that's true also when you go down a level into reps, right? Like, is it dials? Are they setting, but it's not holding? Are they not just putting the math in their favor and dialing enough, right? Is it a conversion problem, right? Where they're not able to close. And so being able to look at those metrics is something I, I do every single day across all the sales teams. Do you find that there's, since there's such a high velocity, do you find that you're seeing those trends changing constantly or do you constantly, consistently see your top performers staying at the top and all those metrics throughout the funnel? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in studying kind of the outlier. And yes, to answer your first question, there is movement, right, among like the sales, the the top reps. And, you know, if you're doing your job right as a manager, you're developing, you know, your mid reps to become top reps, right? So there definitely is movement and competition and it. And that actually helps velocity, right? Because you have a rep who just started, who's getting better, starting to beat a top rep, that's going to push them. Competition is, is huge, right? And high velocity. But then I would say on studying the outliers is if I have a rep who's wildly outperforming everyone else, I want to figure out what they're doing so that we can study those best practices, right? Which goes into kind of some things that you can do with scale matters with voice of prospect and voice of closer. Let's figure out what they're doing, right? And then let's start to look at our scripting and say, where is it different? What are they doing different? What are the commonalities? And what's different and let's see if that's scalable let's go ahead and test that and release that to everybody to make everyone more competitive yeah something you mentioned earlier that i wanted to go back to the one call close how high of an asp do you think you can your company i don't remember what your average asp is but like how high can a company's average selling price be to go forward with the one call close do you think like at at certain point you know someone's not going to make a decision on the first call I've gone as high as $2,000. $2,000 per year or per month? Per month. Do you think it's an ACE cost issue or do you think it's a product complexity issue? I think it's a product complexity issue. I also think, you know, when you get to a customer where you're close to $2,000 monthly recurrent, which is a pretty sizable decision, especially for, you know, our ideal customer, some of them just get it and they're like, this just makes sense. And the the salesperson's done a great job of demonstrating value. And it just makes sense. I will tell you that the higher ASP conversations are usually not rebuttals and objections, right? They're usually people that it makes sense. They've tried something. They understand that this is a much better mousetrap and they get like, and, and they see the value in that higher price package. And so they're more of asking technical questions of, okay, how do I add this in? How do I add this in sort of thing? Those are actually, you know, that's when you've got the right salesperson, you got the right 
customer on the phone, they've tried something in the past and it just kind of makes sense. And then, you know, I would say your lower kind of ASP deals are the ones where it's overcoming objections and rebuilding value. So it's, I don't think that it's their resistance to the price. I think sometimes the product can make so much sense for someone that, and, you know, you also have to remember a lot of people have spent a ton of money trying to solve this problem. And so when they see it, it just kind of resonates and they move forward. But I would say like on the one call close, if the product's super complex, it's very difficult to do because you need multiple people to help explain it. So a combination of easy to understand product, a, a need that the customer knows they want and an ASP that's you know somewhere under two grand a month. That sounds like it could be a good recipe for the one call close approach. You hinted at earlier that there are some secrets that you didn't want to share, but this is go to market excellence and we drill down and we don't just go surface level. So is there one thing that you can... Is there one little tip that you might share that somebody could take away with? That's a tough question, man. That's a tough question. I would say... Double your money back guarantee? Is it? What is it? No, no. I won't give you all of the gold, but I will tell you first call incentives that are proactive can definitely increase your one call close rate. And being able to structure that into your packages is really important that can really help move the ball forward to allow a one call close. Like everybody likes to get a deal, right? And so being able to structure things in such a manner that at the end, it's, I feel like I got a deal and I know I'm going to get value. So it makes sense to move forward. Yeah. How, how hard was it to coach individual reps to know when the right time was to weave that in? Or is it so built and in, baked into the script that it's, it, they don't even have to think? It's, it's baked in. Yeah. Baked in. Interesting. All right, let's let's move on. I want to two more things I want to touch on. Number one is you've got a really experienced VP of marketing that works with you. You know, we've worked with Sadef, she's great. How do you manage the CRO VP of marketing relationship? And yeah, what what are the tricks and tips that you have found to to work out there? Yeah, so I'm really fortunate that in my last position is I I, I hired a VP of marketing who was amazing. And then um, coming into Surefire, I have Sadif and she's outstanding. And so I, I would first start in like hiring a VP of marketing that's going to work with the CRO. It's really important that you see they have those traits of being like a self-starter and they, they understand the nuances of kind of, you know, top of the funnel, you know, bottom of the funnel, but they also, they speak the same language as you. And when you have interviews, you can ask very scenario based questions that kind of lead you to that. I was really fortunate in that Sadif and I kind of speak the same language. And so with her and I, it's very, you know, I can start with something that's a concept and say, hey, I, I want to go this direction. And she can flush out that entire idea. And then next thing you know, it's like happening and it's already happened and it's done, which is like just awesome. And that's really what you're looking for. Someone who can take your ideas or a play that you want to run and can put legs to it and then can measure it, right? And be proactive and this is how that it worked, right? The one thing, and I think you and I talked about this before, is... A lot of companies get into this MQL versus SQL sort of thing. I think you're you're going in this direction. And again, we talked about this earlier about success versus sales. A lot of organizations are marketing versus sales. And it's not really by design. It's just something that kind of happens. 
And it happens with this MQL, SQL, like marketing qualified lead, did sales say it was qualified and whatnot versus I like to look at the, the end result. And certainly like we want feedback from the sales team and we have all those things designed, but our inbound team works very closely with marketing and they're giving real time feedback, but we're also always reverse engineering from what keywords, what ad campaigns, when we're running a test, what is actually driving revenue and let's do more of that. And what's driving the leads that, you know, we didn't close that are have commonalities and look the same and let's do less of that. Right. So we're going to the end result and, and looking at it with the salespeople's feedback and we're kind of drowning out the noise of M MQLs and SQLs. And we're just saying, Hey, inbound, you know, not all inbound leads are going to be great. We get that. We want to know what was great about this one what could have been better or what wasn't great about this one. Let's figure out where that's coming from and let's point, you know, our, our arrows in the right direction by making sure that we're focusing on what's actually generating revenue and then, you know, turning down the volume in places where it's not, or it's not our ideal customer. Yeah. Obviously you need, but by doing it that way, the goals of the whole revenue teams are aligned. You know, I remember when I started in, in my first demand gen job, back in like 2013, I was incentivized on quarterly MQLs. And so it's just crazy because I'd be, I wouldn't care if they closed or not. I'd be like, am I getting my, you know, a little bonus or not if we hit X number of leads MQLs. And then, you know, there's always the disagreement after the fact of whether or not it was actually an MQL or not, you know. That would be the wrong way to bonus demand, in my opinion, because then you just get volume of leads when you're really trying to dial in quality. Yeah. And obviously you need to have the right infrastructure in place to be able to measure that end-to-end -end funnel. How much energy have you had to put into the infrastructure, the data, the processes, and how much are you, are you able to, how do you bounce that or balance that with uh, the skills that your VP of marketing has? Who, who owns that function? The ops function, if you will. Yeah. So our operations department, you know, in the beginning was scale matters. <laughs> and so we've started to evolve that out and hire for that role and used a lot of the building blocks of scale matters to kind of build into our own kind of in-house operations team. And so that actually lives under technology. It's with our CTO, but definitely works in close you know, proximity to myself and, and, and Sadif and the marketing department. But yeah, it, it is important, right? That you have feedback loops that you're able to capture, you know, good lead versus not so great and, and good, but could be better sort of thing. And that that feedback is constantly getting back to the marketing team. I would also say as you're building that infrastructure out, it's really important that there's collaboration, that marketing is working with sales and that they're feeding. And even if it's a once a week you know, meeting or it's a, a daily standup or whatever you need to do to communicate things that can be lost while you're building the infrastructure, which is like a really important thing, right? As you scale, there's always going to be things that you wish you had, especially in startups that you don't have. And so in the absence of those, you can fill those with collaboration and communication. So you're still getting to that end result until you can get to automation. It's interesting that you mentioned that ops reports to your CTO. I, I've been, for every guest that comes on the show, I like to dig into what's the right structure of a revenue team, where should RevOps report to. And I've heard CFO, I've heard VP of sales, I've heard CRO, and I've heard CEO. 
but this is the first time I've heard CTO. Uh, what's unique about Surefire and why, why ops according to CTO works for you guys? Yeah, I think it's the stage that we're at right now. Our ops team is not solely RevOps. That ops team is really working across all departments and is also supporting our product as well. And so that ops team is as cross-functional and feels more like there's certainly a piece of their day that's RevOps. There's a piece of their day that's supporting customer journey and case management and Salesforce. There's a piece of their day that's working on different parts of our data integration with our platform. And so they really work across a lot of, they wear a lot of different hats. I think as we scale, right, and as we get bigger, we will have more individualized teams. And then certainly it would make sense for RevOps to, you know, go under, you know, the the revenue leader. And same thing with, you know, someone for operations for success would go under the head of success and whatnot. But right now that team's wearing a lot of hats and it lives under technology because it touch, touches all the technology that we have, not just in our sales stack, but, you know, in our customer stack and everything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially if they're involved in product and not just in marketing, sales, and success. All right, last question for you, Mike. You're a CRO, two-time CRO. You didn't get there alone. Who helped you along the way and who do you look for? Inspiration, who do you look for? What resources do you seek out for, for help in your job? Yeah, the list of people that have helped me, I could go on forever, but I'll mention one person. You know, my very first startup was a company called Profit Fuel. And it was run by a CEO by the name of David Rubin. And he eventually, we, we sold that business to Yodel and he became the chief revenue officer and then went on to be, go to the board of Main Street Hub, which I also worked at. And the thing I really like about him is he always makes time. So if I have a question or, you know, I, you know, throughout my career, I've had a situation come up or need advice. It's never immediate because he's a pretty busy guy, but he always makes time. And I think that's really important as you start to grow your career to remember that, that, you know, you don't ever get there alone. And by making yourself available and by remembering people as they're going through that journey of sharing your experience, you can really impact someone's life. And so I remember having a conversation with him once where his advice was, think about where you want to be in five years. And my answer was, hey, I want to be a chief revenue officer. And then work yourself backwards to ask yourself, are you on track to get there or not? And so it's like, all right, like, what am I doing currently? And is that in line with where I want to go? And I think that's an important concept. The other thing I would say, right, is a lot of people throughout my career have asked, you know, like, how do you get promoted? How do you get to the next level? How do you get to, you know, eventually to be a, you know, a CRO? The real answer is by elevating others and making sure that whatever you're doing, that you're doing it to the highest level and the best of your ability. If you're doing that and you're elevating others and you're helping others out and you're unselfish, you're naturally going to promote yourself by promoting others. And so I think that's really, really important concept too. And being available and helping others and and sharing that advice or what you went through or whether that's, you know, I've had previous colleagues reach out about forecasting or how do I do this rollout with change management, like just making sure that you're always available when you can be to help other people out, I think goes a long way, not just inside of the organization, but in the community as a whole. On resources, I'm a big believer, right? Like, you know, the average CEO is reading, you know, a book a month, big believer, especially since, you know, we have the internet is there is nothing that you cannot Google to learn more about, right? And then 
finding books about leadership and what you're interested in. I think leadership is the one I kind of go towards. So like books like Good to Great and, you know, Ben Horowitz, I, I love everything he's ever written, big fan of his, you know, seeking out, going and listening to 500 startups and listening to them do, you know, demo day and what they look for and how to scale an organization. There's just overwhelming information out there. And so going and finding, you know, that information and consuming that knowledge can really help you understand, like, when you start at where do I want to be in five years, understanding what the people who are looking for in that role can help you understand what you need to do to get to where you're going. Right. So I'm a big, big fan in that self-education is huge, you know, and so spending time and then also sharing that with others. So big believer. And, you know, if you have a great book and you love a book, you know, share that with someone else and explain like the impact that it made. And, you know, all of us are in this together. We all have these unique experiences. And then the last thing I would say is you can learn from anyone, right? Where one teaches to learn. I learn every day from salespeople to, you know, our CEO to our CTO, always have an open mind and, and be a student and, and, and be open to a different perspective. You may not agree with it, but there's always something to learn from it. And that's really how that you grow as a, as a person and as a professional. That's awesome advice. And you just laid out a framework for basically success. You have a, find a mentor, you educate yourself, and then you also mentor and give back to others. For somebody who maybe doesn't have a mentor, doesn't have a mentee, or you know, is in a, in a place where they want those things, what's step one? Yeah, step one, right, is is getting into a role and working with your leader to for them to become that person, right? And so we all have to start somewhere. I mean, I started as a sales rep on the phone, and I would look for people who were outliers, right? Like I think all great salespeople become great salespeople by mimicking someone who is better, right? And so that's step one. And then if your next step is, hey, I want to become a leader, find out who the best leader is in that organization that matches up with your core values and seek that person out to have that conversation of, hey, how did you get here? What have you learned? What do you think I could do better, right? And asking for that feedback. And I did that my entire career and, and still do it today. Is at feedback, feedback's a gift. So ask for, for, for it from your peers, from your leader, from other people on the leadership team. You know, if you have an idea, don't be afraid to go to the CRO or the CEO and say, hey, have you ever thought about this? You know, to open up that dialogue and start that journey would be my advice. And how about the board? How, how much do you interact with the board as a CRO? I mean, I did as a VP of sales a lot too, but frequently for sure, you know, not just the, you know, quarterly board meetings, but definitely giving kind of updates of where we're at or sharing success of, you know, recruiting and people that we're bringing into the organization is, is really important. You know, I think the board, all boards can be very, very helpful, but it's this, it's a similar relationship, right. To the CEO, right. Where you're sharing information, you're asking for advice, I sometimes if I maybe run across something and I, I want to sanity check myself, you know, if there's someone on the board who has relevant experience, which in my case, we, we have someone who's land, ran large sales organizations, I might just sanity check that through them and say, hey, I'm thinking about it this way. Does that make sense? Or like, am I way off base? Um, and so they can be very, very helpful in thinking through those things and, and you know, making sure that you're, you're headed in the right direction. 
That's awesome. Well, Mike, really appreciate your time. This has been 50 plus minutes of absolute gold. So thank you. I uh, loved having you as a guest. Continued success at Surefire Local. Have a great rest of the quarter and I uh, hope you guys kick ass this year. Thanks so much for being on. Hey, thank you so much for having me. At Scale Matters, we believe people make better decisions with better information, not blindly following their gut. That's why we started this podcast. And that's why we offer go-to market analytics that provide high-quality data and unbiased insights that strategic B2B revenue leaders can use to make their best decisions. If you want to check it out, go to www.scalematters.com. You've been listening to Go to Market Excellence. If you find what you've just heard valuable, then be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. Until next time, stay excellent. Oh,